The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. We've been doing a series since around the beginning of December on what I called Back to the Basics, as we're, before we embark on a new book of the New Testament, because we're at a place in our church where we've had some turnover and some growth and the core group of people that attend regularly now are very different than, say, five years ago or six years ago. So we wanted to kind of recalibrate and check the plumb line and go back to the foundations of our identity as a church and the people of God, as is clearly laid out in Scripture. So we wanted to make sure we're all on the same page when it comes to just the most fundamental truths about the Christian life and what God requires of the local church. And that's been the emphasis of our study We've called back to basics. We've looked at what the Bible has to say about various basic truths like uh, elders in the church, uh, church discipline. Last week we looked about discipleship, which is very fundamental to the Christian life, uh, what the Bible has to say about giving and a couple of others. And today, if you look at your handout there, we're going to look at one more, and that's what the, um, back to basics, and I just put membership, church membership. Really, what does the Bible say about membership or church membership? Um, through the years, I've come to realize, serving in about five or six different churches over the years, I actually served at a church that didn't have membership, one church. But the other churches that I did, they had formal membership, and it manifested itself in kind of different ways. They had different procedures. Some churches took it more seriously than others. And... Um, over the course of being here at GBF, nine-plus years, I've met all kinds of believers who've come our way to visit or to stay or to be a part of our fellowship, and you learn people's different backgrounds. And there are many Christians who have backgrounds where they are not familiar with church membership. I've had plenty of conversations with folks who were like, membership, what's that? And didn't know that was in the Bible. Some of the largest denominations that are well-known among evangelicals don't have membership. So Calvary Chapel would be one. That's one of the largest Bible-believing evangelical denominations in the world, and they don't have membership. They never have. And uh, Chuck Smith, who started that back in the 70s, even wrote a book on it and their distinctives, and one of them was that they didn't have a formal membership, and they had their reasons why. And there are local churches here around in our neighborhood, Peninsula Bible Church, very influential for three decades, they don't have a formal membership either. So for some who have come to GBF, that's been a new concept, or they'd say a foreign concept. I would posit that it's actually in Scripture and not controversial or secondary or tangential. It's actually fundamental. Membership in the local church. And that's what I mean by membership, in the local church. Now, if you become a Christian, if you believe in the gospel, in the Lord Jesus Christ, in who he said he was, that he was... Almighty, eternal creator, God, come down to heaven in a human body and lived for 33 years and never sinned and preached the gospel and offered himself to the world as the savior for sin and willingly died on the cross as the substitute, the only substitute for the sin of humanity. As he died willingly on the cross, was punished by the father on the cross for the sins of those who would repent and believe in him. And then he was buried and then he rose again just as he said, and just as the scriptures predicted on the third day, and then he ascended back into heaven where he came from, that was the atoning, saving work of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you believe in Jesus and his work, 
calling out to him as Savior and knowing that there's no other way you can save your own soul, and you believe and you pray to God and ask him to save you with full understanding that he will save you in that very moment and you will be born again or you'll be adopted into the family of God. You will become a Christian. You will be justified. You'll be transferred from the kingdom of Satan into the kingdom of Almighty God and his beloved Son. And you become a part of his spiritual family at that moment that you believe in the gospel and you remain in that family forever for eternally you are secure in God. And what happens when you believe in the gospel and you're saved in that moment of time, you are actually added to the universal church, the invisible church, which includes visible believers, but it also includes Christians who have died and gone to heaven. They're also a part of the church. That's the universal church. And it includes the physical church on earth and all the physical local churches, but it includes everybody who's a true believer. That's the universal, pure church of God. All those who have believed in the gospel and been born again. And according to 1 Corinthians 13, the moment you, or chapter 12, the moment you believe, you are added by the Spirit of God to the body of Christ. So that's a different kind of church membership. That's supernatural, spiritual, eternal, invisible church membership that the Holy Spirit makes you a part of the universal body of Christ once you are truly born again. So if you are a Christian here today, you are, in one sense, a member of the church, whether you went through a class or not, whether you believe in membership or not. If you're a Christian, you are a part of the member of the body of Christ. So that's one truth the Bible clearly teaches. There is another truth that the Bible teaches about membership, and that's what we're going to look about at today, and that's local church membership. That's here on earth. Uh, it's represented in the book of Acts and also all of the epistles. And it's affiliating with a and identifying with a local church of believers. And there is formality to it. And so that's what we want to look at today, church membership. So I would argue and posit that Scripture teaches that if you are a Christian, not only do you automatically belong to the larger universal body of Christ, you also need to proactively pursue becoming a member at a local church. So... Uh, today, I'm not arguing that everybody here should be a member of GBF of this church, but what I, I am arguing from Scripture is that if you are a Christian and you're born again, you, you need to be a part of some local church. And we're going to see why, and I hope it's clear by the time that we're done. So let's go ahead and look at it. Back to basics, church membership, and we'll look at various Scriptures starting in the Gospel of Luke chapter 15 and the heading there, God expects every Christian to be committed accountable, serving, and faithful to a local church membership, or a local church membership helps fulfill these goals. Now, by way of introduction, I want to read these two paragraphs, a short statement about the importance of joining the church. And contrary to what typically goes on in our American church culture today, uh, the early This pastor, years ago, wrote and said this, The early church that Jesus' apostles established had a definitive local church membership pattern. In the early church that we see in the book of Acts, if you became a Christian, then you immediately joined the local assembly of believers. And you joined in a formal, accountable, long-term manner. Today, it is commonplace for Christians to go to church, but to never become formal members of any local body 
Countless Christians the world over never join the church, and many are even passionately averse to such a notion. Many other Christians engage in, quote, church hopping. This is when Christians sporadically go to various churches, buffet style, picking and choosing what they like from all the different options at the various churches, but coming up short of ever committing to and identifying with one particular local body in any long-term manner. Many times the mindset is, quote, what will this church do for me? How can my needs and desires be fulfilled, end quote. That is sad, but it's true. And nevertheless, the Bible clearly teaches that if you are a saved, born-again Christian, then God wants you to formally join a Bible-believing church. He wants you to become a local church member. So with that, let's go ahead and look at a survey of scriptures, starting with the early church and the Lord Jesus himself uh, to help us through this teaching of the Bible. Point number one, I got five points here on membership. Number one is membership is modeled by the early church. It's modeled by the early church. By the way, that quote from that pastor, that was in the first book I wrote, and it was 10 years ago. The basic disciplines of the Christian life is what it was about, and I, I believed joining a local church was basic to the Christian life. And so there's a whole chapter there on what the Bible has to say about becoming a member of a local church and joining a church. And over the course of 10 years, I've gotten feedback from people, um, some folks who have come to our church, GBF, over the course of 10 years, and some good feedback. People have been encouraged and edified in the Word. Some people have actually joined the church as a result of reading the chapter in this book. But I've also had feedback that wasn't so positive, and I listened. Um, one, I remember uh, folks who were going here. They never did join the church, but they went here for a long time and attended and told me that, you know, um, you have a lot of good things to say in your chapter about membership and joining, but there's one thing that I just I didn't agree with. I didn't like it, and that was you kept using the word formal, formal membership, formal membership, formal membership. And so we talked about that, and uh, another fellow said the same thing, and one of the brothers was honest with me, and I said, so... He grew up in a church that didn't have membership at all. So it was kind of a foreign concept to him. And we talked about some scriptures, and we talked about the chapter I wrote. And then in the end, he confessed, and he was honest, and he said, you know, what it comes down to, Pastor Cliff, is I just don't want to be accountable to anybody. <laughs> That's what he told me. And he's a, he's a Christian, and we were friends. And I said, wow, thanks for your honesty, man. You, I wish more people were honest like that, because that was really the issue for him. I just don't want to be accountable. Uh, and membership kind of scares me. So uh, he never did Join the church. Uh, but let's go ahead and look at it. What the New Testament early church modeled for us. And I put their um, model by the church. I, I started with Jesus. He's the head of the church. He predicted he would build his church. He built his church through first with the 12 apostles that he trained and told them they will be the foundation of the church. And they were. And he gave them the theology of the church. But even his own teaching, Jesus laid the groundwork for church membership in this parable in Luke 15. And I'll read it to you. And when you read this, or you've probably read it before, you probably weren't thinking church membership. But to me as a pastor, pastor is synonymous with shepherd. A shepherd is someone who cares for sheep. And my wife and I, when we were in Israel a few years ago, the guy that was leading us on the tour had us up on a hill looking over Bethlehem down in the valley, and it was all green. And we, we just sat there for about a half hour as we were waiting for some shepherds to come out and lead their sheep. And sure enough, there was a shepherd and went right through uh, the valley there down below by Bethlehem on the green grass, and there was like a shepherd or two, and they had some sheep, and they had a definitive number of sheep. They had uh, just few enough sheep that they could actually count 
And it was probably guaranteed that if you were to ask that shepherd, how many sheep do you have? He would have been able to tell you, yeah, well, I have 74 sheep. And he probably knew the identity, maybe even the names of a lot of these sheep, characteristics. That was typical of a shepherd. A shepherd is priority number one. You're supposed to know your sheep. That means how many you have, where they're at, what they're like, and what their needs are. So it has to be a finite number. And so in the church, God calls elders or leaders of the church shepherds. And the people are sheep. So the parallel is clear. Elders, bishops, overseers, pastors, shepherds of the local church are supposed to know their sheep, who they are, how many they are, what their needs are, and so on. And so that is in keeping with this parable that Jesus gave. Let's read it, Luke 15, 1 and following. Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming to Jesus, listening to him, but both the Pharisees and the scribes, who were his critics at this point in Luke, began to grumble at Jesus' teaching, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. They thought that was despicable. So Jesus told them this parable, saying, what man among you, if he has a hundred sheep? So this is obviously, this is a shepherd. This was commonplace 2,000 years ago in Israel. It's commonplace in Israel today. So the analogy is crystal clear. What man among you, what shepherd among you that owns sheep, that's their livelihood, that is their living, it's a priority, what man among you, if he has a hundred sheep, notice the number, this shepherd knows he has exactly one hundred. If he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them. See, a shepherd who is in tune, he knows his sheep. He knows that when one wanders off, when he's got a group of 100, he's not oblivious. How many sheep, how many sheep do you have? I don't know. I got a, got 150, a couple, I don't know, a few dozen. That's not a responsible shepherd. The shepherd knew 100 sheep. One is missing. He knows it. And that's a problem and has lost one of the sheep. Does he not leave the 99 in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? Well, of course he does. It's a rhetorical question. And then when the shepherd has found the lost sheep, he lays it on his shoulders and he's rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors saying to them, rejoice with me for I have found my sheep which was lost. I love that parable. That's a beautiful picture of what a pastor is supposed to be like. He knows his congregation. He knows every person, every member, every non-member, what their needs are, who they are, and keeps track of them. This is laying the foundation for what a church was to be like. The leadership in the church is supposed to know their sheep. So that's why I put it, it's presupposed by Jesus' church membership. By the way, the definition of church membership is simply that where you formally, I don't think that's a bad word, affiliate and identify yourself with a local church family of believers in Jesus Christ. And you're mutually committed to that local church. That's where you're going to serve. That's where you're going to be fed. That's where you are accountable. That's where you're loyal. That's where you invest your time and your energy and your talents and the blessings God has given you. And there's a commitment there. And there's a definitive leadership. And they know you by name. And you know your leaders. And you can identify with it. And you can say, when someone asks you, what church do you go to or belong to? What's your church home? 
boom, you can say it right off. You know, this is my home church. This is my spiritual family, locally speaking. And when they ask you, who's your pastor? And you give a specific name. Well, it's Pastor Cliff. Now, hopefully, when someone asks you, who is your pastor? And you say, it's Pastor Cliff. Hopefully, Pastor Cliff knows that that's the answer. In other words, I, ho- I hope I'm aware. If you say that I'm your pastor, I hope I know that I- you're my pastor or I'm your pastor. Because that's kind of scary. And we're going to see that in just a second on another point. So that's what I mean by church membership. Also modeled just uh, in the early church. Let's go ahead and look at Luke, uh, or actually Acts chapter 2 by Luke. Uh, Acts chapter 2, verse 41. Jesus promised he was going to send the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, and he did. Came in a powerful way on all the 120 believers that were there waiting, headed by the apostles and Peter. Peter was overcome with the Holy Spirit of God. He preached an amazing gospel message. It was during a feast week. Therefore, there were crowds and pilgrims from all over the world everywhere. So he's preaching publicly the gospel to literally thousands of Jews from all over the world. And when he was done preaching his gospel sermon, verse 37 of Luke 2 says, or Acts 2, now when they heard this, the gospel that Peter preached, when the Jews, when they heard the gospel that Peter preached about Jesus, they were pierced to the heart. They were convicted by its truth. In their mind, in their conscience, they knew what Peter said was true. They knew that they were sinners, they needed a Savior, and they knew that Jesus fulfilled Old Testament prophecies, the coming Savior and Messiah. And they knew they needed to act, pierced to the heart. So they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? How do we respond to this gospel truth? And Peter said to them, repent, turn from your sin, acknowledge that you're a sinner, repent and turn towards God, the only one who can save you. Turn and embrace the truth that I just preached to you. That's what repent means. Repent. And each one of you. And after when you repent, as you repent, you believe and you are saved. So this is the proper order. Repent, believe, and be saved is what he means. And when you are saved, then each one of you needs to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. That was the pattern in the New Testament. First you get saved, then immediately you are baptized. Baptism is not a part of salvation. It's an outward sign that salvation has already taken place. Repent, each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And then you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And for this promise is for you and your children also, meaning your, anybody that you preach to, understands and believes, can also be saved by this same message, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as many as the Lord our God will call uh, to himself will be saved of those who believe. And with many other words, Peter solemnly testified and kept on exhorting the crowd, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. So there was a revival. And so then, here's the conclusion, verse 41. Those who had received his word, the gospel, received meaning believed it and got saved, they were baptized. So there was probably the 12 apostles and a team of other people. Who knows? Maybe they had a team of 30 or 40 or 50 people began to baptize all these people that got saved that day. And they probably did it maybe near the Jordan River. So there's plenty of... You do that, and you can get it done in less than two hours in terms of how many people they had. Because it said on that day there were added about 3,000 souls. 3,000. What I'm trying to point out here, what is significant is it wasn't just uh, come as you will, and then there's masses of people, and then uh, raise your hand if you're saved, and they raise their hands, and then, okay, go jump in the river, and then they're not taking track of the people. They were very specific. They were taking track of the people. They were identifying the people. Someone was responsible for literally writing down how many got saved. 
They're logging it. These people officially were added to the first church in Jerusalem. They became members. It was a formal process. A formal message was given. A formal response was required. A formal initiation process through baptism was required. And then a formality of identifying how many people responded, got baptized, and were added to the church. 3,000 in this instance. So there was formality to the process of becoming a member. And in the book of Acts, they only know of one thing, and that is joining the local church, Jerusalem. So 3,000 souls got saved that day. So this is the model set down by the apostles in the early church, that there is a formality to identifying people in the church, even counting numbers. Now, at times, we will say, GBF, well, we're not concerned about numbers, meaning there are some churches that are driven by numbers. Well, how many people did we have today? Oh, we had our all-time high, 232. Write it down. We need more next week. Driven by numbers. How many visitors did we have today? Driven by numbers. What was the offering today? How much money are we taking in? Because that many churches are driven by that. It's all about numbers. It's all about trying to manipulate, trying to grow the church. We are not in the business of growing the church. We're not in the business of building the church. The position is already taken. Jesus said, I will build my church. That is so encouraging. You just rest in that truth. Jesus, this is your church. You're building it. You're growing it. We are just servants. We're not concerned about numbers in that regard, but we are concerned about other numbers, and that's when we want to be responsible stewards. We do have to keep track of the numbers of money and finance and balance the budget and pay the bills and be responsible before God. We do concern ourselves with numbers about the people. We need to know how many sheep we have. God, how many sheep have you given us? Okay, 261. Okay. And who are they? And wow, how come today we only have 242? Where are the other 19? Are they out of town? Are they sick? Are they mad at the church? Did they leave? We need to find out. So in that regard, numbers are important. And that was modeled by the early church. So there are numbers we need to be good stewards about. Church membership was formal and modeled by the early church. That includes the Apostle Paul. You can see this in all of his epistles. One example, if you want to go to Romans 16 real quick. There are churches, and I... I've been a part of some of these churches, and people tell me stories about some churches. <laughs> Actually, it was like I heard somebody's testimony a couple of weeks ago, and they were saying that they were at a, another church, and they had hardly been hardly been attending just oh, just weeks. And then already the church leadership is asking them to do things to uh, to be a deacon or to head up the music ministry or to head up this ministry. They've only been there like a week or two or three. I hear that story all the time. They're like, wow. The leaders don't even know that person. The person doesn't even know the church yet. And there's no process whatsoever of identifying them, vetting them, hearing their testimony, adding them to the church. Because there's no membership. There's no process. There's no accountability. It's just, oh, there's warm bodies and they say they're Christian. God doesn't want that. That's dangerous for everybody. We have to identify our people. That's what Paul did. Romans 16 in the, the last chapter here, there's, this is the church in Rome. That's how it starts out. The Apostle Paul to the, the specific church in Rome. In other words, a very specific congregation of people. People who have names. And many of these names are actually listed in the conclusion, chapter 16. So I want to highlight, membership can only account for the specificity by which Paul and his secretary address the people in the church 
of Rome. They had a formal membership. They knew who was there. They knew who, knew who the leaders were. They knew what the needs were, who the gifted people were, who were hosting the church fellowships in their home by name. It starts in verse 1 of Romans 16. I commend to you our sister Phoebe. She has a name. Who was a servant of the church. What church? Which is at Sincrea. So she belonged to a very specific local church. By name. The receiver in the Lord. He skips to verse 3. Greet uh, Priscilla and Aquila, two other Christians. By name, my fellow workers in Christ, who for my life risked their own necks, to whom not only do I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles, and also greet the church that is in their house. So Priscilla and Aquila had a church in their home, and they knew who were meeting in their home. So that's formal membership that identifies specific people. Uh, verse 5, greet Apantus, Apanata, Apanata, you should name your child this if you haven't had a kid yet. Come here, Apanatus. Well, who was he or she or he? Well, the first convert to Christ in Asia. The point is, these shepherds, Paul, they know their sheep. They know them by name. That can only happen through this formal identifying process. These people were not church hopping. They were committed to the local spiritual family. Greet Mary, who's worked for you. Greet Andronicus and Junius. Uh, verse 8, Ampliatus. Verse 9, greet Urbanus and Apellus and Herodian and Narcissus. Verse 12, it gets better. Tryphenea and Tryphosa and Rufus. 13, and Asyncritus and Phlegon and Hermes and Petrobos and Hermes. And, I mean, it just goes on and on. All these names. This is this is a shepherd who knows the sheep. That can only happen through this commitment to a, a loyalty to a local church. Now, some of the critics or skeptics of church membership. One of the arguments was, "It's well, it's too formal. It's too formal." Another argument was, "Well, the New Testament never says anything about church membership, technically, specifically. I mean, the word membership is not used." I'm thinking, yeah. That's okay. I'll give you that. And the New Testament never uses the word Trinity either. The Bible doesn't use the word Trinity, but that's a basic Christian truth. The word Jesus never occurs in the Old Testament, but Jesus is in the Old Testament clearly. So that's a superficial, illegitimate argument to say that the word membership isn't there. And so I did ask, and are the prince, okay, I'll grant you that the word membership isn't there in your English Bible, but... Uh, do you think the New Testament teaches that you should be identified with the local church? He said, yep. Do you think you should have, every Christian should have a, a local church body? Yep. Do you think you have, should have every, uh, specific shepherds that you identify with as your elders? Uh, yeah. Do you think you should be, every Christian should be committed to a local church? Uh, yeah. Do you think every Christian should be loyal and consistent and faithful to a, a local church? Yes. Do you think every Christian should be serving in a local church? Yes. Do you think every Christian should be held accountable for all of those things in a local church? Yes. Then I, then I told him, well, then that's my definition of membership. So the principles are clearly taught there. So that's what we're getting at. That's our argument. So the early church clearly modeled what we would call church membership. Let's go on to number two. Uh, there are benefits to having a local church membership. I have pastored um, in different roles, I think in about five other churches before GBF. And they were all different. They were all true churches. Like I said, some didn't have membership. And a couple 
had membership like in name or in their bylaws, but they didn't have it functionally or really, and they really didn't care. And people are like kind of being added to the church and joining the church, but not really going, not really joining the church because they're not going through a process and they're not on the membership role, but they're putting in, being put in places of leadership. And then when there's time for a vote, they actually get to vote and they're not formally members. And it was just very hard to control. And then when it's time to discipline them, you couldn't because they weren't members, but they're there at the church. Anyway, so a formal church membership process in keeping with the New Testament teaching makes shepherding so much easier and clear in terms of trying to fulfill basic obligations of a shepherd. And that's what basically 2 through 4 is going to highlight. So membership enables the ministry of church discipline. If you have membership. We have a membership process here at GBF. And just so you know, it's not overly burdensome at all. It's what are the prerequisites of membership? Do you know Jesus Christ? Are you born again? Can you articulate verbally the gospel? Have you been baptized after you got saved? By immersion is modeled in the New Testament. And are you willing to abide by or, or sit under the authority of the teaching of this church and its leadership that God has? We believe God is ordained through its elders and deacons. And are you committed to just fulfilling basic biblical commands like preserving the unity and using your gifts and those kind of things. So that's that's it. And then we have like two classes, and if it goes well, then you become a member. So it's not overly burdensome. But one of the things that we do in the membership process is familiarize anybody joining the church of the church discipline process in Matthew 18. So that's what I want to look at now. We spent a whole sermon on this, so I'm not going to uh, prolong it, but I just wanted to note one verse, particularly verse 17 in Matthew 18. So in Matthew 18... This is one of the only times Jesus even mentioned the church. The church doesn't exist at this time in Jesus's ministry. It's a prophecy about the church. I'm going to build the church at Pentecost and beyond through my apostles that I am training. And when that church is built and in existence, it needs to be managed because the church and 100 percent of churches through all time on planet Earth will be occupied by people who are sinful. Every one of our members is a sinner. And when you get a bunch of sinners together, you have problems. And that needs to be managed. And so Jesus laid down the management process of dealing with sin and sinners. It's beautiful. It's short. It is concise. It is succinct. It is clear. It is supernatural. It works because it's Jesus's church. And so here's the management process. We call it church discipline process. It has four steps, 15 through 18. And we've gone over this, but one of the steps, verse 17, after confronting a sinner with two or three people, if the sinner doesn't repent after the second confrontation with two or three witnesses or two people, and they harden their heart, then you escalate the confrontation. This is a professing Christian. Well, what do you do, Jesus? Well, if he refuses to listen to the two or three that are confronting him in unison, then you tell it to the church. That is the corporate local church. Wow, you go from like two or three people confronting you to now 200 people confronting you. Or if you're at a mega church, like the Church of Jerusalem, 3,000 people confronting you. Or when the Church of Jerusalem got bigger, 5,000 plus confronting you. Wow, that's intimidating. But that's what Jesus said to do. You tell it to the church. And I believe that means the local church 
in which they are affiliated and what they're a part of. That's your spiritual family. Just as you have to confront sin in your own home with your siblings or your spouse or your parents or your children and work it out and get forgiveness and restoration and, and move on in the grace of God, so also we do that in the local church, the local church family. That's what's going on here. And if you're dealing with a recalcitrant, unrepentant, hardened, professing Christian at this stage, you tell it to the church. That's what we do here at GBF. We get all our members together. We have a meeting with our members, and we announce this person has defied initial confrontation. They've hardened their heart in an obedience to Jesus. We are now telling you about it. Pray for them. Call them to repentance. But you tell it to the church. Let them be to you. Oh, and then he goes on. If he refuses, refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And then if they refuse to listen even to the corporate body of the local church, they dig down even deeper and become even more hardened, then let that person be to you as a Gentile in a tax collector. You know what? They're not acting like a believer. And at this stage, we're just going to consider them not a believer. So pray for them. Minister to them accordingly. Call them to the re- repentance. Give them the gospel. Pray for their soul. But the point is, you can't do church discipline like Jesus required if you don't have church membership. If you're just kind of loosey-goosey and everybody comes and goes, yeah, we don't have a membership, we don't keep logs, we don't care, we don't have a class, it's just whoever, you know, if you're a Christian, you're welcome, which sounds great, but it's not practical, and it's not even biblical. And one of the areas where it's most uh, unwieldy is when you have a discipline issue. So you don't have membership and you're trying to run things and then you got somebody who's really divisive and cantankerous and uh, full of pride and they're creating all kinds of problems and gossip and they're dividing the church and they need to be shut down or held accountable. Somebody confronts them. They don't care. They don't give in. And then two or three people confront them and they don't care. And then you tell it to the church. Well, you can't tell it to the church because they're not a member of the church. I mean, you can tell it to the church, but they, there's no recourse. There are no consequences. You can't kick them out of the church because they don't even belong to the church because there's no membership in the church. And many times what happens is, okay, fine, this church, these people don't like me here. I'll just go next door to some other church. That happens all the time. So you've got unrepentant, hardened, compromised, professing Christians leaving one church, going to another, starting all over again. Nobody knows anything about uh, their sinful patterns and sinful behaviors. That other church, they can't be warned because there's no membership process to do that. If you have a membership process in your local church, and then there are other churches around you who also have a like-minded church discipline process that's in the Bible, you can work jointly with local churches when it comes to church discipline. GBF has done that with other churches where maybe we had a a sinful member and they fled our church out of fear of accountability and they went to another church that was like-minded, had church discipline, and then we're talking to their elders and their pastors and we're trying to pursue that goal together of bringing them to repentance. And I've seen it work beautifully just as Jesus said it would. So Membership enables the ministry of church discipline. Very, very important. Let's go on to number three. Membership facilitates the mandate of the people in the church. There are many mandates and many commands of the saints. I just want to look, if, if I wanted to summarize, this is what I do in membership meetings, in the orientation meeting that talk, takes maybe 30 minutes or less. I always try to highlight just two verses, and I'd say here is the backbone and the theology of the GBF membership process and the rationale for it. These two verses are the biblical precedent. Hebrews 13 and 1 Peter 5, we'll look at both briefly. 
If, if, you are, um, if you are not a member of GBF, but you're attending our church today, and say you've been attending for a while and you're a Christian, one thing we were committed to when we started 10 years ago, our elders, was we're not going to coerce or manipulate anybody into becoming a member. There are, I've worked at churches that do that. Hey, did you see those new visitors? They've been here three Sundays. Go get them. Ask them to sign up. Invite them to membership class. I'm thinking, mm, wow, that seems a little soon. We don't know them. They don't know us. And shouldn't the Spirit of God be doing that? Like leading them? So from experience and seeing it done the wrong way, uh, our elders, from the very beginning, we aren't going to manipulate or beg or plead with anybody to become a member. As a matter of fact, uh, we want people to take their time, come weeks, come months, get to know our church, the leadership, how we do things. We don't want any surprises if you do join the church or any regrets on your part or any regrets on our part. And that has served us well. People taking their time and being prayerful about it and getting to know the people here, the leadership, seeking God's spirit, seeking his wisdom. Is this really the place for you? That's the way it should be. But inevitably, as God prompts people to join the church and consider membership in that class, I'll just basically highlight two verses, starting with Hebrews 13. What I was going to say is, uh, if you if you are going to GBF, you've been here a while. It's a it's good to more formally, seriously consider this. Is this the thing for you to do? To prayerfully consider it in light of everything that I'm teaching out of God's Word. And Hebrews thirteen seventeen should be like at the priority top of your list in considering membership, because at the end of this book, it was written to a local church or. Christians who were in local churches, there are several commands. And one of the commands is in verse 17. It's real simple. And it's two Christians. And it says, obey your leaders, obey your leaders. This is in a church context, talking to Christians about the local assembly. And it says, obey your leaders. This is a command. It is not an, an option. If you're a Christian, this needs to be obeyed. If you don't do this, you are in sin. Obey your leaders. Well, who are the leaders? Well, I think the leaders are local church leaders. It's clear from the context and the book. So whoever the author is, oh, by the way, remember to obey your leaders. What does obey mean in the Bible? It means to do what someone tells you to do. Real simple. In action and in attitude. So what is this saying if you're a Christian? Do what your spiritual leaders in the local church tell you to do. And, of course, that's in the context of their legitimate jurisdiction. So it is limited. Not in every area of life. We're not supposed to micromanage every area of your life. That is not our responsibility. And don't ever subject yourself to that. So obey your elders, obey your pastors, obey your bishops, obey your overseers in the local church, and submit to them. Two verbs, different verbs, complementary. Do what they tell you to do. Submit is more the emphasis on the heart. And do it with the right heart and the right attitude. They go together. And so in membership class, we make it clear. Now, if you're joining our church, it's clear from Scripture, you need to obey and submit to the leadership of this church. And that would be, by God's designation, the plurality of elders. And the elders could change. It's not always the same five guys. 
It's whoever God raises up. Are you willing to do that? And it's your leaders. They become personal possessions of you. My pastor, that's a legitimate statement. My elders obey your leaders and submit to them. That's why I was saying earlier in the introduction, when people ask you, who is, when they say, who is your pastor, what do you say? Very important. Well, my pastor, it's Pastor Cliff. And again, man, I hope I know that. I hope I know that you're saying that I am your pastor because of all the implications, the accountability on my head, but also commands given to you. Then you need to obey and submit, not just me, but the elders at GBF. It's a mutual relationship by God's design. And if there's, if there's not an understanding on the part of the elders, you're, you can't be a member of the church. You can't fulfill this command. We don't even know you're telling people that I'm your pastor or we are your elders. Well, I go to three churches and I go to this one in the morning because you got cool sermons. And then I go in the afternoon for my younger fellowship. And then at nights I get this really great music at this other local church. And I'm not a member of any of them, but I go frequent them all. Man, I'm, I'm riding high as a Christian. It's, it's wonderful. The buffet of Christianity that's out at my disposal. There are people like that. That's church hopping. That's illegitimate. It's not responsible. Who are you accountable to? Who are your pastors? Who do you obey and submit to? This is a problem in American Christianity. Why should we obey and submit to the elders in the local church? Well, here's one of the reasons. They keep watch over your soul. So I'm responsible to literally watch over your soul. That is frightening. That's scary. That's hard. That keeps me awake at night. That keeps me from sleeping on a regular basis. They keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Oh, now I'm losing even more sleep. Uh, As those who will give an account to who? To the Lord Jesus Christ. Let them do this. This is my favorite verse in the Bible as a pastor. Let the pastors do this with joy and not with grief. Oh, I love that. I want ministry to be a joy. I want pastoring to be a joy. I want shepherding to be a joy. And it can be. As a matter of fact, if as I think about it, uh, Pastor Cliff, why are you a pastor? Well, one of the reasons why is because it just gives me joy like nothing else. I've tried other things. That's part of the reason. There is great joy. There's eternal reward. There is also great grief. Don't do that. Avoid that. For this would be unprofitable for you, Christian or professing Christian. So uh, that's kind of one of the main foundational beams of a theology of church membership, Hebrews 13, 17. Answering the question, who is your pastor or who are your elders? And you need to be able to answer that question. If you're here today, you're a Christian, you live in this area, you've been going to GBF and you call this your church, but you're not a member, I would encourage you to take this seriously. Because right now the elders don't consider you a member. And we don't consider it a priority to be watching over your soul. Because we don't see it as a mutual commitment the way this verse outlines. That needs to be formalized. It's almost like a covenant. Almost like marriage. It needs to be two ways. So that's the mandate for the people. Then the other second pillar foundational passage is 1 Peter 5. Let's go ahead and look there. That's point number four. Membership helps management by the elders so there's a responsibility on the part of the people and there's a responsibility on the part of the elders so now i will be preaching to myself and pastor bob and 
Elder Sam and Elder Tim and Elder Peter, I will exhort you and myself in light of First Peter 5. Helps the management. When you have membership, it helps us do our job. Therefore, Peter says, Peter was a, an apostle, but he was also a pastor and an elder of the first church in Jerusalem. That was a huge, that was a mega church. And now he's writing this letter to encourage a plurality of elders at any given local church. And here's what he says to those elders. Uh, therefore, I exhort Pastor Cliff and the elders of GBF. I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elders and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. What are you exhorting us to do, Peter? Verse 2, shepherd the flock of God. The verb is to shepherd. That's what we're supposed to do. What is a pastor supposed to do or an elder? To shepherd. And all that that entails, lead and feed, to summarize it, to provide leadership, teaching the Word of God, prayer for the people, living as a model, giving direction, spiritually speaking, managing the church. That's the verb. We are command. That's priority number one. That is my job description. Shepherd the flock of God. Shepherd the people. That's a huge responsibility. My next question, if this is my job description, your main responsibility, McManus, is to shepherd the people, shepherd the flock of God, shepherd believers. My next question would be, well, which ones? I want to know who they are. Who are my sheep? What is, who are the members on my team? There's nothing worse than playing a game of ultimate Frisbee or whatever, and you don't know who's on your team. And you're throwing it to the wrong person all the time. Everybody's yelling at you. You're an idiot, whatever. It's like, well, I didn't know who my members were. Totally disoriented. Well, that's all right. Well, who do I have to shepherd? Well, two key phrases. Verse 1, he says, elders. I exhort the elders among you. So it's the people among you. So it's the ones right in your midst. Here they are. And he gets more specific. Well, which ones among us? Shepherd the flock of God among you, verse 2. And then in verse 3. And don't lord it over those, definite article, the specific ones, which specific ones? The finite number of ones allotted to your charge. It means the very specific people that God has entrusted to your care. So it's a finite, identifiable group of people. So those who are, that's who I'm supposed to shepherd. I am not supposed to shepherd all of Sunnyvale and every Christian there. I'm not supposed to shepherd uh, all of Northern California and all Christians there and Christians across the country or whatever else, formally speaking. I'm accountable first and foremost to this local body by God's design. And that's who I'm held accountable for. And so that's why membership has served us well as the elders from the very beginning because we've always had this membership process and we've always identified who our members are. How many we have what their names are, what their needs are, what their weaknesses are, how they are serving, how they're a part of us. We pray for them regularly, very specifically. And this is our obligation. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God in keeping with Scripture, not for sordid gain or money that's illegitimate, but with eagerness, eagerness, nor yet is lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be an example of the flock. And when the chief shepherd, that's Jesus, appears, the senior pastor, by the way, is what that phrase means. When the one and only senior pastor appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory, all elders and pastors, if you were faithful to your local assembly. So if you become a member, it's much easier for us to fulfill this obligation from Almighty God 
to shepherd you. So very, very important. So this is how we view the local church. And again, we don't press people uh, or coerce them or try to manipulate people into becoming members. We are delighted when you're interested. Absolutely. It's uh, when somebody's being recognized as members, it is my favorite Sunday, like today was. Thanks to Victor and Carol and the Lord Jesus. So let's uh, close with some misgivings about membership. I've already mentioned several. So I think it's pretty clear in Scripture. Uh, the principles of membership are there. The benefits are clearly delineated. But there, nevertheless, there are Christians and even professing Christians who don't like membership. Um, they avoid it. They dismiss it. Maybe their church doesn't have it. What are the misgivings about membership? Well, I told you what my friend said who was very honest and said, you know what, Pastor Cliff, it just comes down to the fact uh, I don't want to be accountable. I want to take my vacations on the weekend when I want to. I said, well, you can still take your vacations. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.